Today's show is sponsored by you. Yes, you. The Old Fanboy Podcast is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners. Ever since starting the official L Fanboy Patreon page a few weeks ago, I've started getting contributions from you all, and I'm really just so grateful to everyone who's taken the time to support the show. Last week's show was part of my thank you to everyone who has supported me these last few years and these last seven months since I've been a solo act. The feedback to last week's show has been wonderful, setting download records for Elf Fanboy, and I'd like to once again thank my guests, Kyle Hester of Preacher 6 and the one and only Bill Jet Ramey from Batman on Film for coming on. For any new subscribers, strap yourselves in. This week I've got more guests and a ton of exciting news to cover. For longtime listeners and supporters, once again, thank you. If you'd like to pitch in your support, visit patreon.com slash lfanboy or visit www.lfanboy.com. Now, let's start the show. L Fanboy, episode 38. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 38th edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. What's going on out there, everyone? Hope you're all having a wonderful time. I know I am. This is like fanboy Shangri-La these next few weeks. I mean, we had Thor, we got Justice League on the horizon, we got Star Wars coming, we got the Punisher coming, we're going to have some crazy trailers in these next few weeks. It's just, there's so much to look forward to, I just, I'm just sort of in my glory, and I hope those of you out there who enjoy this stuff uh, are also having a great time, because we are, there's just an embarrassment of riches right now, if you're someone who's into these kinds of, you know, geeky properties that we all love and adore quite so much. Um, look, on today's show, we've got so much to cover. It's going to make your head spin. Honestly, I mean, we're, I'm going to be talking Ragnarok. I'm going to be talking Justice League, Venom, Stephen King's It 2, Flashpoint, Aquaman, Infinity War. I got a couple of guests coming up at the end of the show for a spoiler talk on Ragnarok and a, a surprising out of nowhere talk about Justice League we weren't even planning on going into that I know you guys are going to love. Um, and also, you know, since that chat will be spoiler heavy, I am saving it for the end so you guys can listen to this whole episode up until the point and I will give you the opportunity to cut it off before I start that conversation, thus saving you from the spoilers. All right. So until then, hang out with me a little, will you? Um, and you know, you're going to have a lot of chances here to hang out with me, you lucky devil, you. Uh, I've got some announcements to make about all that. So first of all, next week is going to be a big one. Uh, next week, I'm going to have a different bit of Justice League goodness every single day of the week next week. Um, so for starters, uh, I've got my first Patreon patron perk because there's something that everyone else gets next week that you guys, my initial patrons, will get this week. And what is that? 
a nice old-fashioned YouTube rant from yours truly. Uh, it'll be called Why Justice League Won't Crack a Billion. Uh, and unlike some of the other things I've teased in the past, this is actually ready to go. Uh, I've done the research, I've written out my bullet points, and I'll be giving you guys exclusive early access to this rant on Thursday. Everyone else will get it as part of next week's insane Justice League-themed shenanigans. So what shenanigans do I have in mind, you ask? All right, here's the, here's the uh, schedule for you. On Monday... You guys will get the aforementioned Why Justice League Won't Crack a Billion rant, which, by the way, is not going to be an anti-DC thing. And it's not going to be an anti-Justice League thing. I've got some, uh, you know, I'll leave it up to you what you think of how well thought out the reasons are. But I've got some some food for thought on why this film won't crack a billion. It's not an anti-DC rant. It's not an anti-Zack Snyder thing. You may be surprised why I think this film is almost assuredly not going to hit the billion mark. So that's Monday. On Tuesday, you will get your regularly scheduled episode of El Fanboy. That'll be episode number 39 during the day. It will feature a Justice League preview with Rick Shu of the Batman on Film podcast. Podcast? Podcast. Maybe if I was from Baston. The Batman on Film podcast. Anyway, uh, and then at night... Those of you who prefer the visual medium, you will get a video re-review of Man of Steel on YouTube. Because as part of next week's festivities, I will be re-reviewing and re-inspecting the first two-thirds of the Zack Snyder DC trilogy leading up to Justice League. So Tuesday night, after you've enjoyed El Fanboy for your ears during the day, you can get a video review for your eyes on Man of Steel on YouTube at night. On Wednesday, there will be another video review, and this will be for part two. This will be for Batman v Superman, but it's got a special twist on it. Since I have reviewed Batman v Superman, um, this is going to be a video review of the Ultimate Edition, which I've never seen. So uh, it's going to be a bit of a fresh take. We're going to see what I think of that. I actually just plunked down my own money. Uh, to buy the Blu-ray because no one I know who lives in any real proximity to me owns the damn thing and I can't seem to find it streaming. So I had to go and buy an old school hard media copy of it. Go figure. Um, so yes, on Wednesday night, you will get a video review of Batman v Superman, the ultimate edition over on the El Fanboy YouTube page. On Thursday, that's a big one, I'll be meeting up with a few New York area El Fanboy listeners for the Unite the Fanboys Justice League Watch Party. Myself, Kelvin Chavez, and Jeremy Scully will be attending the Thursday night preview screening in Forest Hills at the UA Midway Stadium Theater at 9 p.m. If you'd like to join, go grab your tickets and meet us there. I'll be posting photos and live video from the festivities that night. For more details on you, how you can participate in that, visit elfanboy.com. Then Friday, I will cap off the week with a Justice League video review fresh off of what I will have just experienced the night before. And you will also get a brief. I'm not going to go crazy with this because this is a very hectic week, but I will be 
releasing a Fanboy Friday roundtable with guests doing a group non-spoiler Justice League review here on your podcast feed. So, folks, you are going to have a multimedia Justice League blitz here with your boy MFR and some exciting guests to be announced later. Uh, all of next week. So enjoy. I hope you guys enjoy it. Hope you guys stay tuned. Uh, I've got see what happens. You give me a little bit of money on Patreon and I lose my fucking mind. And here I go. Uh, <laughs> my wife's going to kill me when she hears all the different things I'm doing for you guys. But I love you guys. And uh, speaking of how much I love you guys, I know you're here for a show not to just hear me ramble on and on about things. So let's get to the week's news. Just as we always do, we're going to get things started today with a look at the box office. So this past weekend, the big story was Thor Ragnarok. You know, it's really quite funny that every once in a while you get these movies where they just can't quite put their finger on where it's going to land. Um, depending on what time of day, which day of the weekend you checked the usual suspects, your box office mojos, your deadline box office, the estimates kept on changing. So if you recall heading into the weekend, Thor Ragnarok was said to be somewhere in this very wide open range of 100 to 120 million. Then early in the weekend, they pointed out that it had very, very strong Thursday previews, which were seems very, very optimistic for what this you know, maybe was going to go towards the higher end of its projections. But then after Friday, the bean counters were looking at certain things and certain trajectories and certain track histories. And so Saturday morning, they were saying that it looks like it's going to make $104 million this weekend, which still would have been a $20 million improvement over its predecessor, Thor The Dark World. But still, 104 would have put it at the lower end of projections, kind of a womp womp. But then... Saturday night, they updated those projections to say, okay, now it looks like it's going to land somewhere between 116 and 118 million because the Saturday drop-off does not seem to be as dramatic as people had expected. Then on Sunday, out of nowhere, not only is it not 104, not only is it not 106 to 118, it landed at a very, very healthy 121.5 million, actually surpassing its highest prediction of 120. And then on Monday, news got even better. It went from 121.5 up to 122.7. Jesus Christ. So that is the final total for Thor, $122.7 million opening. That doesn't even account for what it's doing worldwide overall. It also had like the biggest China opening ever. It broke some record over there. And we know China is like the big mamma jamma in terms of global box office. But let, let's focus on domestic for just the time being. All right, here is this week's top five. Uh, with no surprise whatsoever, number one is Thor Ragnarok with, as I said, 
122.7. In second place was the other new wide release, the very savvy bit of counter-programming known as A Bad Mom's Christmas. Yes, the sequel to that Bad Mom's movie. Um, this film actually opened a little less than its predecessor, so it did. It kind of did the opposite of what a studio would want. You know, they kind of want to see things get bigger, as Thor did, and as you know, most sequels aim to do. Bad Moms actually opened. I believe I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna verify this while we speak about it. Yeah, it opened nine million dollars less than its predecessor. You know, the five-day total for Bad Moms Club was 30.6 mil. The five-day total for Bad Moms Christmas is 21.2. So, you know, kind of law of diminishing returns, but still, when you consider that this was not a very, very expensive film to make, it only cost 28 million bucks, and worldwide, it's it's at 28 million, this thing will definitely break even, so no one's very sad about that. And it, you know, it it worked as counter programming. It came in at number two. Then in third place, we got Jigsaw, which last week was in first place. <clears throat> it uh, made six point five million dollars in its second weekend. That was a sixty percent drop, sixty point six percent to be exact. Then there's Tyler Perry's Boo Two, a Medea Halloween, which cooled off another 55% to 4.5 million and rounding out your top 5 is Geostorm with 3.1 million dollars in its third week that is a 46% drop the 120 million dollar movie is said to have now made worldwide 183.2 million so there's a chance this thing will crack even, but very, very slight chance. Um, but yeah, so Thor is the big story. Congrats to Marvel. No one really knew what this was going to do. Was it going to do something comparable to Thor series numbers? Or was it going to be more like Captain America Civil War numbers? And listen, it, it's no one should have really realistically thought that it would be like Civil War. Um, because really, aside from the fact that it has two Avengers in it, just as Civil War had, you know, on its posters, it had Cap and Iron Man. Captain America Civil War also had everyone else, too. You know, that was Avengers 2.5. It had everyone but Thor, or, you know, but Thor and Hulk. And uh, it had Spider-Man in it, you know, for the first time ever in the MCU. You know, Captain America, anyone who is trying to say that Ragnarok should touch Civil War numbers is out of their goddamn mind. Um, You know, the real comparisons here were, you know, to Thor and possibly to uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. And when you can, you know, when you factor all that in, Thor Ragnarok did exceedingly well. Um... And now, you know, the big question is, what kind of a drop is it going to have? You know, it's got good word of mouth. It's got great reviews. It's coming out at a time when people could really use themselves a little bit of uh, escapism. You know, right now where things are kind of sad and somber in this country. And it looks like, you know, people are looking towards... Thor Ragnarok and films like it as a way to like, oh, this just looks like a good time. I don't need to know a million things about this universe. I'm not going to be bludgeoned with, with, 
you know, deep thematic crap and, and, and stuff that I have to really worry about. This just looks like a good time. And I think that's going to work in this film's favor. Um, so kudos to Taika Waititi for, uh, for his success with Thor Ragnarok. And there will be a much longer form Thor discussion at the end of this when I bring on today's two guests. Um, but now in terms of things that we can discuss that aren't covered in my chat later, um, you know, what, one of the, one of the more surprising elements of the film for, for Marvel critics <clears throat> is, uh, and this is, you know, a surprising thing is that the score was actually pretty unique and pretty interesting. It was actually like noticeable, you know, the, on, on Twitter, the, uh, yesterday, I, myself and a bunch of my supporters, my friends online, we all sort of got into a long form chat about you know, the importance of superhero scores and themes and the way that the Marvel movies are so f- sort of forgettable and disposable when it comes to that. Whereas DC always seems to kind of come through with really iconic themes for their characters. So the Ragnarok score seems to be the exception to the rule. You know, the music was actually pretty damn solid and it was unique. Uh, and the composer, Mr. Mark Mothersbaugh, who, by the way, a little bit of 80s trivia, you know, he was part of that 80s band Devo, you know, whip it, whip it good. So he scored the film and, you know, he's got a quote that I think includes a little interesting tidbit in there where he talks about the score. So I'm going to read you his quote and we're going to sort of talk about what's interesting about it. All right. So he said, so what I did to try and protect him, referring to Taika Waititi, is I wrote the score totally as if it was just the strongest, most memorable possible Marvel film you could think of. But then I also, in a parallel universe, I wrote the score that you could dial back and forth how much electronics and how much human orchestra you wanted. And so I gave Taika and Kevin referring to Kevin Feige, the opportunity to, at their final mix, when they're seeing everything that I haven't even seen yet, I gave them the ability to take it further into a new direction with new electronics, or they could pull it back and stay in the world that was, you know, the world that everyone knows as a Marvel Universe. I think they did a good job of giving it a new sound. I think they did a good deal of giving it something new, that's still rooted and got its foundations in the sound of Marvel that everyone expects. So let's unpack that a little bit. Um, on the one hand, very, very cool. It, it seems, seems like an interesting approach. It almost sounds like he wrote the score two different ways. You know, there's the way that's the more standard sort of orchestral way. And he also wrote it in a way where it can be done electronically and it has have more of that like... 80 sci-fi music uh, that, you know, that the film ultimately sort of went with. Um, so that's, you know, that, that seems like a good novel approach and a lot of work, by the way. You know, most composers probably just, you know, they write their score and they submit it and that's it. It sounds like he wrote like two different variations of it to then give uh, the director and the producer, uh, you know, variety to choose from. Um, on the other hand, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit. The fact that it's very telling how much power he implies Kevin Feige has. 
let's talk about that for a second. So he says, so I gave Taika and Kevin the opportunity to at their final mix, their final mix, not the director, their final mix. So let's just talk about that a second. Kevin Feige, who's just a producer, you know, kind of a figurehead, you know, and we always give him credit for being the, the, the architect of the MCU, it looks like he's so heavily involved in the process that he even chooses the score. He's the one who gets final say on how these movies sound. And we already know he gets final say on how they look. So to me, that was just sort of surprisingly telling that Mother's Ball would basically refer to the two of them almost on even footing. You know, you would think he would say, yeah, I gave it to the director. I wanted to give the director a nice wide palette of, of textures to choose from. But he says, I gave it to the director and the producer and that they both basically look at what they want and they decided together what made that cut of the movie. I just found that very, very interesting. I don't know if you guys did, but you know, that's how things in the MCU run. It's the TV model. Remember, the producer really calls the shots. The director and the producer have to agree on everything. Otherwise, the director is going to get neutered. <laughs> um, but all right. So now, you know, another bit of interesting Ragnarokness is, you know, Hulk under underwent a sort of rebirth in this movie. He looks a little different. He sounds a little different. You know, in the original, uh, he was voiced by Lou Ferrigno, the original live-action Hulk from the 70s. They brought him back to to add voice textures to what he had to say to puny God and all that stuff. And he was also there for the Incredible Hulk. This time around, it's Mark Ruffalo delivering the lines. And they also just sort of made his face a, a lot more like Ruffalo's. And uh, visual effects supervisor for Thor Ragnarok, Jake Morrison has a quote about that. So here's what Mr. Morrison had to say about some of how Banner's facial expressions and overall look really leaked into the Hulk design this time around. He said, We had this thought that because the Hulk had to actually deliver some dialogue in this one, he only really said one line in the first Avengers film, and I don't think he had any lines in the second one. In this one, he actually had to deliver not only a line, but also do comedy. And as every actor will tell you, drama is hard, but comedy is really hard. So we were worried about, frankly, falling with failing with the comedy <clears throat> because you don't want visual effects to break the comedy of the movie. So we figured if Ruffalo's going to be delivering the lines, why not say because he was trapped in the back of Hulk's mind for two years that a little bit of him didn't leak out maybe. And, and maybe that's why he can speak a little bit. And maybe just maybe that means he might look a little bit more like Ruffalo. And we actually went back to some of the original character designs for Avengers 1. And because they wanted to make it more sort of brutish, they'd diverge from those designs. But I've had a look at it, and there's some minor thing in the artwork and just went, well, this stuff's great. And there's more Ruffalo in there. And so we started this iterative process where we really ripped the Hulk apart and started again. So, you know, that's interesting. That's cool. Yeah, for those of you who've seen it or are going to see it, 
There's definitely a lot more of Ruffalo in Hulk this time around in the face and the expressions and all that. Um, if I have one critique, aside from what I said last week about how Banner seems very different overall, Bruce Banner himself, the writing seems to have sort of changed him a little too much for my liking is, you know, the Hulk is losing his textures visually. He's getting more and more just glossy and green and becoming more just kind of like Shrek, you know, it's, it's, I kind of wish they were going more for the photorealistic Hulk, you know, in certain ways, I loved the original Hulk design from the Edward Norton, the Incredible Hulk, and I feel like with each iteration, he's becoming less photorealistic, less detailed, and more just sort of glossy, and, and, and generally just a big green guy with a cartoonish face, so I don't know. I'm kind of hoping that they go more for a photo reality moving forward. But now we're going to swing on over to the DC end of things. So look, uh, yesterday there was another sort of big Justice League uh, slash DC Entertainment expose. You know, uh, last month there was the one from Vulture. Now it's the Wall Street Journal. And there was a lot of interesting things that came out of that. And it's kind of perfect timing, too, because yesterday I was looking all over the damn place to try to find a reported budget for this movie. Because we know Warner Brothers sort of has a history of throwing a ton of money at these big DC movies. Um, You know, the budgets, if if you want to go back to freaking 2006, the budget for... Superman Returns was ginormous. If you want to look more recently at Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, it was a very, very costly movie. And now here's Justice League, and I couldn't find a damn figure. And then the Wall Street Journal showed up with a reported budget. And wouldn't you know it, it's fucking nuts. Uh, Right now, they're saying it's $300 million is what they've spent. In the, you know, in the area of $300 million. Now, if that's what they're saying, that means it's probably more. Because, uh, you know, that's just, you know, that, that, that's just public relations. You know, they, they don't want anyone to know exactly how much they spent because, you know, then that really sort of ratchets up the pressure on the film to do well. So, you know, they, they want to sort of underplay it a little bit that they've gone all in as even as the tagline for the movie suggests, you know, Warner Brothers has gone all in on Justice League. So that was something that came out of the Wall Street Journal report that they apparently cost $300 million. Uh, I would not be surprised if it's more in the area of 350 or 400 But hey, listen, that, that's just my own speculation. I don't have any hard reporting on that. But even just as a reported figure, $300 million is a lot of fucking money. Now, some of the interesting things that came out of that was, you know, they they confirmed what has been reported elsewhere. They reported what Batman on film has said. They reported, you know, they confirmed that, you know, there had been a Zack Snyder screening that didn't go over so hot. And that was when Joss Whedon was brought on to essentially make the film more watchable. <clears throat> you know, to basically just try to fix things up, lighten up the tone, make it a little more... Um, you know, easy on the eyes and have a greater shot at success. Uh, And ultimately when he, you know, when he took over for the reshoots, uh, there's a quote that says, you know, a lot of the work that Wheaton had to do was integrating the two tones and making it feel like one movie. Um, 
So that's interesting, right? Because we know we know that there has been all kind of lip service to the fact that this was always going to be a lighter movie and this was always going to be more of an optimistic sort of movie. But, you know, this report, which, you know, has direct quotes from Jeff Johns and John Berg, and they clearly had access to DC Entertainment. And this is the Wall Street Journal. This isn't just some random uh, fanboy blog. You know, this really sort of clarifies what happened there. That, yes, uh, when when Jeff Johns stepped in in the middle of last summer, you know, he saw what was going on, and one of his first priorities, according to this report, was to sort of move things in a more light and optimistic tone. And this was already like, you know, a month or two into production that just based on what he was seeing in the dailies and just based on what was happening already, it didn't seem like enough of a course correction. So him and Berg and Nelson kind of had to instantly start trying to implement changes to the movie. Then when the film got screened, you know, six or seven months later at the start of this year, it still was not up to snuff. And that's when Whedon came on. And if you recall what my source told me that I reported to you guys long before all this came to light. Remember, my source told you guys this film has been remade twice and it's about to be reshot. Well, wouldn't you know it? That has been confirmed because if you think about it, According to the timeline presented by Wall Street Journal, you know, Johns and Berg and Nelson came on to the project already in the middle of it and did an overhaul. They kind of they even sort of make it sound like Jeff Johns himself rewrote some things. So that was the first sort of way the film was sort of remade mid-production. And that's when Jeff Johns came on. Then there's what happened earlier this year where Joss Whedon was brought on to totally fucking add a bunch of new stuff and cut a bunch of old stuff. So that's the second time the film's been overhauled and quote unquote remade, as my source puts it. And then there are the reshoots that really sort of put the finishing touches on the fact that this is not at all the Justice League that was originally planned a few years ago. Um, So the Wall Street Journal was just another bit of fun sort of vindication. Um, Trying to think of other things that jumped out at me. You know, they described next year as essentially being, quote unquote, a reset year. The 2018 is going to serve as a sort of soft reboot of the DC Films universe at Warner Brothers. Uh, We've kind of heard this sort of stuff before where moving forward, they're going to be basically loosening up all of the interconnectivity and letting all the characters kind of go off and and occupy their own sort of space. And yes, there will be some crossover and some team-up stuff, and we may eventually get to a Justice League 2 and all this sort of stuff. But for the time being, for the foreseeable future, all these characters are now going to be sort of tossed apart from one another to kind of give each one its own sort of room to grow. That the interconnectedness of things is going to be going away. Uh, Toby Emmerich, uh, who's the president of WB at the moment, said, uh, We don't want to limit the creativity filmmakers can bring to the table by saying these characters have to come in at a, in a particular order and all fit into the same universe. Um, you know, so there's, uh, you know, that th- th- this is just further confirmation of what we've been hearing 
Uh, it's stuff that unfortunately, you know, people have been trying to uh, dismiss or say that this isn't the case and blah, blah, blah. But Warner Brothers itself is telling you this is the case. Um, so, you know, it's it's uh, it's interesting stuff. I'm really just so intrigued by the movie we're going to be getting next week. I can't wait for it to come out. I've been purposely avoiding all the clips. I know there's a clip that apparently was released that uh, states that I mean, not that it states, a clip that includes Danny Elfman's original Batman theme from the Tim Burton movie sort of popping up during a Batman sequence. I'm not seeing it. I don't want to see it. I want to be riveted when I'm sitting there. I want to get all the the chills and the feels and the nostalgia when I hear it for myself then. I don't want to see just an isolated 90-second clip online on my fucking iPhone that's going to spoil that for me. So I, I can't wait to see the movie. I'm looking forward to next week's watch party. Getting to meet some of my listeners face-to-face. Uh, that's super exciting for me. Um, and yeah, it's some closing thoughts on this little sort of expose from Wall Street Journal. Is, you know, it really seems like the studio had a huge hand in the movie we're going to see. Uh, you know, aside from the rewrite that John's oversaw last year where he's trying to make the film, quote unquote, less serious and more hopeful. There's the fact that you know, Warner Brothers CEO, Kevin Sujihara, basically made it a mandate during production that he wanted this movie to be under two hours. And if you think of that, it's almost like the final running time is like giving him the finger. <laughs> There's almost like a, like a, you know, like Whedon and or Zack Snyder were like, yeah, you want it under two hours? Well, here is one hour and 59 minutes. So it almost, it almost seems like there's almost something defiant about that. Like, all right, you wanted this under two? We're going to make it like 45 seconds under two hours. Um, so that was interesting also. Um, and by the way, later on, Dave Gonzalez, my you know one of the guests today, he's got one of the most insightful bits about what was cut from the running time and whether or not we're going to see an, another, another one of these ultimate editions on Blu-ray like they did with Batman v Superman. So stay tuned for that if you're down for the uh, spoiler chat later. And if you're not down for the spoiler chat, then definitely revisit this episode once you've seen Thor Ragnarok because uh, Dave's chock full of interesting observations about about Justice League and about Ragnarok. Uh, it's just a really good chat. So I hope you guys stick around and check that out later. But, um, you know, there's plenty more DC-ness to talk about here. Um, you know, Superman, by the way, is finally getting some love from the promotional department. Uh, you know, they released a, a motion poster just now on the website with the tagline, hope never dies. And on the motion poster, they actually show our boy. They show Superman there. And then he slowly disappears into like an all white sort of silhouette as each hero sort of surrounds him. And we hear Lois Lane deliver the line. This is what we know. The world has grown darker. And while we have reason to fear, we have the strength not to. There are heroes among us to remind us that only from fear comes courage, that only from the darkness can we truly feel the light.
That's a great line. It's a great line and it works on two levels. It works in the narrative sense because that's the story they're trying to tell, but also works as a sales pitch. You know, covertly, they're saying to casual fans, listen, this movie will be lighter. If you were unhappy that the previous films were sort of too dark and too dour and too depressing and too contemplative, this is going to be a film about courage and light and no longer about fear and darkness. So that line and having that in the, you know, in the motion poster and hopefully trying to push that into whatever TV spots are still here, that is a great sort of sneaky ass covert way of speaking to people who were put off by the old tone under Snyder's regime at the head of the DCEU. Moving right along, we got Aquaman news for you. Jason Momoa has a, has a bit of a quote about the film. Where you know he's got he reveals some interesting stuff here. So let me go ahead and read you Mr. Momoa's quote. Uh, you know Mr. Momoa of Game of Thrones fame, Mr. Momoa who's playing Arthur Curry himself. Here's what he said: In the story, we're going to see a couple different younger versions of me, and even before I was born. So you'll know where my mother came from, Atlantis. We've got to establish seven different kingdoms and the threat surpassing justice league this moment in time is his call to become king the only thing that can save atlantis is me fighting my own brother there's a big battle and there's an epic fight it's also a big road movie because we travel all over the world it's got that star wars quality of gigantic ships and guys riding sharks it's going to be this whole world you've never seen before You're going to see him start as this guy who probably rides bikes, works on cars. You get to see him this one way as kind of a dirty, dark drunkard and then turn into this regal king. Uh, I mean, listen, that sounds like a fascinating arc. Uh, I've always thought that the Momoa casting was sort of inspired. Say what you will about Snyder and trust me, I've said plenty, but he's had he's done a wonderful job with casting here. I love every single casting decision he has made. Uh, I really, I, I don't have one wrong remark about any members of the Justice League, even the supporting cow- characters with Amy Adams and Lawrence Fishburne and every, I just, Jeremy Irons, yeah, he's, he's just, he's done a phenomenal job with casting and I can't wait to see what Jason Momoa does with the character. I know he's sort of a departure from what we're used to seeing from Aquaman, but I have a very good feeling about that. I really believe in James Wan. And, uh, you know, I hope Aquaman continues us on that Wonder Woman path of basically softly rebooting everyone's perception of what DC films can be. Um, now, with that said, it is sort of interesting, the parallels. You know, I've always kind of felt like Aquaman in this in this con- you know, in this new DC entertainment continuity they're creating is very much like the stand-in for Thor. He's kind of, you know, what Thor was to the Avengers, you know, the sort of lovable scoundrel who is over, you know, undergoing this whole transformation into a king one day. I mean, that's exactly Thor's arc, even right down to the fact that he has to fight his own brother. If you think about that, he has to fight his own brother, just as Thor had to fight Loki 
it looks like Aquaman's going to have to fight his own brother in this one. Uh, so for those of you who, you know, who've picked up on the fact that they seemingly are very, uh, similar characters where they're sort of the, uh, the sort of rough around the edges, very, very powerful one day King guy who has to learn to be humble, who has to learn how to rule a kingdom, you know, those parallels are becoming increasingly easy to spot. Uh, again, that's not a knock. That's just, you know, it's just something that jumped out at me that I'm very interested in seeing how it actually plays out. Is he going to go the same arc as Thor? You know, Thor just went through this interesting sort of transformation over the course of three movies where, you know, yes, he was going to be the rightful king. And then Odin sent him to Earth to be humbled. And while on Earth, he learned how to be a human being, how to love, how to care for others. And throughout the course of his three movies, you know, he had to learn what it takes to really be a leader, to one day possibly inherit that throne. And it really sounds like, you know, Aquaman's going on a very similar path. So I'm just curious to see how that all plays out and if it really does end up being as similar as on paper, it sounds like it's going to be. But uh, that's not the only DC news we got to talk about today. I mean, th- th- there's a lot. There's a lot. So like I said, I hope you guys strapped in because we're going to keep on going here. The uh, Justice League post-credit, you know, Momoa sort of addressed it in an interview. You know, he confirmed that it's going to be there. Um, and remember, yeah, that's that's sort of a departure. You know, Suicide Squad included a bit of a mid-credit thing last year. But if you recall, DC used to be adamantly against that sort of stuff. You know, Chris Nolan once took a shot at the fact that the post-credit stuff was like a gimmick and, and totally unnecessary and not really how a good film is handled. And I, I think even Jeff Johns years ago sort of had something to say about that. And, you know, Man of Steel didn't have one and Batman v Superman didn't have one. Wonder Woman didn't have one. It used to be DC's thing to be like, no, we're above that. We're not going to do the post credit bit. But no, here we are for Justice League. There will be one. Um, Look, I'm of two minds because on the one hand, I know what it is. I've had it confirmed. I've had it described to me. Uh, and I'd love to just tell you what it is, but I'm avoiding spoilers. So here's what I'll, here's what I will do. I will give you a non-spoiler tease. Okay. I just want you to know like more or less what to expect because when it comes to these kinds of things, you know, there's different things that are achieved through the post credits. Like early on in the MCU post credits were meant to hype you for what was to come. They would plant a seed or basically kind of show you like this is where this is where the grander story is heading next. But then over the course of the last few years, it's also sort of morphed because sometimes it's not really a tease. Sometimes it's just fan service. Sometimes it's just something to make you sort of laugh and giggle on your way out of the theater and just something else to sort of endear you to these characters where it's really just it's a nod to a comic book thing. It's a nod to something about the characters that the main story didn't get to explore, but you get to see it here for a few seconds, that sort of deal. And the Justice League one is, in fact, the latter. It is just fan service. No foreshadowing, okay? Uh, There's nothing in there that's going to get you hyped for Justice League 2 or Aquaman or Wonder Woman 2. It's literally there... It's a sweet little sort of moment that sort of, you know, visits an old comic book staple. 
all right a sort of recurring idea that's been that's been covered in, in, in through across different mediums and now gets touched on in the film world and that's all I'll say no teasers uh, no you know, no spoilers um and there's also, you know, in the last week, something else that's sort of come up with Justice League is that people are seeing the damn thing now. You know, there are test screenings for civilians. There are critic screenings for, you know, the, the pundits out there who are who are tasked with, you know, reporting on all this stuff and are now, you know, going to have to publish their reviews soon. Um, and like, from what I'm hearing, this thing will not, be received the way Batman v Superman was. You remember that movie has like a 26 or 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. It was considered a big dud. Uh, it looks like this will be better than that. I don't know how much better. I have a feeling if we're going to compare it to the way other DC films have been received, uh, it's not going to touch Wonder Woman. Uh, although more on that in a second, because some people think it might. Uh, I think it's going to fall somewhere between Wonder Woman and Man of Steel. Remember, Man of Steel, even though the Rotten Tomatoes system is broken and they consider it rotten, uh, 52% does not mean rotten. It does not mean it's a bad movie. It just means it was a 50-50 proposition. Half the people who saw it liked it, half didn't. So at best, you can describe the movie as divisive. Not bad, not good, just something where, you know, there's, it doesn't speak to everyone. Um, so I have a feeling that justice league is going to be like that, but trend upward. And later on, I I will be giving my prediction for what the rotten tomatoes score for the film will be, but just suffice it to say, based on what I'm hearing from fellow journalists, from people who've seen it, you know, it looks like it's going to be sort of a split decision here, not you know, overwhelmingly bad or good, just a split with a slight positive trajectory. Um, a couple notes that I'm hearing is that people are loving Ezra Miller's Flash. Uh, and I'm also hearing Warner Brothers is loving him too, by the way. Um, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of love for Steppenwolf. Uh, the villain is kind of getting shit on. So we'll see how that plays out. I remember I... The villains have always gotten shit on, and I've almost always liked them. You know, I, I was not one of the people who hated Lex Luthor last year. I wasn't one of the people who hated Doomsday last year. In fact, I enjoyed each of them for what they were. Hell, even uh, Jared Leto's Joker, I enjoyed seemingly more than anyone else did. So, you know, I I don't have, even uh, what whatchamacallit over here in Wonder Woman this year, People were kind of like making fun of Ares and then sort of shitting all over the third act battle. And I dug it. So I don't know. I'm willing to give it a chance. But once again, I'm just hearing that Steppenwolf is not really uh, testing so well, so to speak. Um, but, you know, I brought up The Flash and Ezra Miller. And on that front... Uh, it looks like there's going to be some movement on that Flash movie soon. You know, Warner Brothers is is loving everything with Ezra Miller right now. You know, he they're banking hard on him, you know, because he's in the DC universe as Flash. He's in the Fantastic Beasts universe. And, you know, he's uh, Warner Brothers seems to think very, very highly of this young man. But anyway, I bring him up because the writer of that Wall Street Journal report says that one thing that he didn't include in the write-up was that Toby Emmerich told him 
that they are very close to inking a deal with the director for Flashpoint. So I suppose we can expect an announcement pretty soon. Um, Ezra Miller seems to already be looking forward to Flashpoint. And he uh, kind of brought up some some fan geeky fun that he's he's hoping the storyline gets to uh, explore. Because for those of you who are unaware, in the Flashpoint books, when Barry Allen goes back in time to save his mother, you know, he accidentally sets off like a, you know, a ripple effect, a butterfly effect that changes fucking everything. And in true comic book form, some of the changes are <laughs> out of this world. Uh, one of them is that Thomas Wayne becomes Batman. Uh, the other one is that Martha Wayne becomes the Joker. And there's all kinds of things. Yeah, listen, it's read up on it. Try Order the book or speak to a fellow comic book nerd friend. Have them explain it to you. But, you know, Ezra Miller knows his stuff and he's hoping it goes there. Here's what he said. He said, I think that the emotional arc of the Thomas Wayne stuff in Flashpoint is one of the illest parts and to see that different manifestation of Batman and his whole different style. And I love the reality that you have this universe that is so inverted from the one that we know. And this one factor remains the same. But in this flipped way, Batman is steady. But it's going to be the result of a different side of the same tragedy with Thomas Wayne instead of Bruce. And that's dope. Um, and he also says... About, uh, what, uh, hang on. He's, he, he says a lot of very excitable things. Um, yeah, he says, oh, hell yeah. I think he's amazing. He's referring to, uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan. Um, yeah, that is what he's saying. I'm sorry. Sorry for the pause. Just wanted to make sure I wasn't talking out of my ass, but he said, yeah, oh, hell yeah. I think he's amazing. Referring to uh, Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Thomas Wayne. And then he said, I, and I think he would fall right into what is becoming a very, very serious ensemble of actors. I'm so excited about Kersey Clemens. I'm so excited about Billy Crudup. I just couldn't be more stoked about the names involved so far. So what do I think about this? Do I think we're really going to see the Thomas Wayne Batman stuff or, you know, we're going to see Lauren Cohan who played Martha as the Joker? Uh, look, I, I don't think there's any chance we really see that play out. I see something similar to the nightmare sequence from Batman v Superman happening though, you know, where maybe uh, Barry Allen is warned about what messing with the past could do. And that night, Barry has a nightmare. And in that nightmare, he's offered like a quick glimpse at the alternate world that he's risking creating. And in that nightmare, we'd see Dean Morgan as Batman and Lauren Cohan as Joker and all that other insanity. But then he'd wake up and that'd be the end of it. And the movie would move on with Barry fully aware of the dangers of changing the past, but trying his best not to. Something a la, you know, like Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Uh, I kind of, you know, I think that's kind of the way that they'll do it. I think they might throw it in there as a bit of like fan service and as just like an interesting sort of like a what if scenario. So, you know, Barry Allen will either be given like a vision where he kind of sees it somehow 
or he has just like a nightmare and that's how it happens. But I don't think we're going to actually see a storyline that plays out with Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Batman and Lauren Cohan as the Joker and all that sort of other stuff. It's just going to be a quick sort of like just, you know, cutaway fan service, uh, a little scary sequence, and then we move on from there. By the way, since I mentioned Marty McFly and Back to the Future, a part of me still wonders if there's any chance Robert Zemeckis who did the Back to the Future trilogy is really still sort of waiting in the wings to do this because that would be pretty badass to get the Back to the Future guy to do the Flashpoint movie. But I digress. We'll see how that plays out. Uh, Another bit of DC news is the Shazam casting. We've got some more casting news. So there, you know, we we know that um, Zachary Levy or Levi has uh, been cast as Captain Marvel himself. And now last week we found out who's playing his uh, Billy Batson. It's a young actor named Asher Angel. Uh, According to Variety, Angel has been cast in Shazam as Billy Batson. You know, he's only got a couple of very small TV show roles under his belt, but he's best known for a Disney Channel series, a Disney Channel series called Andy Mack. And later this year, he's going to be in an indie movie. And, you know, but this is going to be his first sort of big coming out party where everyone's going to get to see him. Um, hey, listen, you know, there's not a lot to say on that. I don't know this actor. Uh, I do know that him and Levi have an interesting sort of, um, I would say, resemblance. There was a picture of, of, of Levi and him together yesterday where I swear they have like the same eyes, the same sort of twinkle in the eyes, one another. Um, so it looks like they're going to try to do a thing where maybe, you know, Captain Marvel isn't just this hero he becomes, but he's also sort of a jump forward in time for Billy Batson, which I'm not sure that's always the case. You know, someone out there, feel free to correct me on Twitter, but I've always kind of felt like when Billy transforms into Shazam, it's not just him as an adult. It's like he becomes this other person. Uh, but judging on the resemblance between Asher Angel and Zachary Levy, Levi, whatever the fuck, uh, I wonder if they're trying to make it seem like, you know, he's becoming his adult form whenever he transforms. If I'm totally off on that, let me know. Uh, moving right along, uh, yesterday there was a story that would have been today's lead story had it gone anywhere, but now it's just sort of an interesting, uh, what if scenario. So yesterday, it was reported that Disney was in talks to buy most of the entertainment assets from 20th Century Fox, which would have brought the X-Men license back home to Marvel. And that got everyone bugged out, thinking about, oh my God, the X-Men and the MCU, oh shit. Uh, But then, just as quickly as that got started, someone pissed all over that fire. Because then we found out that those talks are essentially... In the past, uh, you know, the, the two sides aren't talking anymore. Um, and right now, you know, neither company has even commented on it officially. But as of right now, those talks are over. Um, look, I, I'd like to add, by the way, that this doesn't mean the deal is dead. You know, if you recall, Disney and Sony once had talks to bring Spider-Man into the MCU that fell apart. And then what happened? That deal eventually happened anyway. Now, this would be obviously a much bigger deal than that because they wouldn't just be getting a couple of characters. They would essentially be buying a studio. But, you know, it's just a recent example of how negotiations can often stop 
start, stop, and restart before both sides end up playing ball. So the mere fact that there's been a conversation on the matter is exciting because it's now a possibility. Um, and look, I don't want to get lost in the hypotheticals of all this, but since everyone is so curious about the X universe merging with the Marvel Cinematic Universe, uh, here are my two cents. Um, if this were to happen, I say end the X-Men as we currently know them cinematically. Reboot the series a hard from scratch, from zero reboot. Don't keep any of the current cast any other current continuity, I'm sorry, I love you, James McAvoy, I love you, Michael Fassbender, but let's just end it. Do a complete from scratch reboot in a few years, mind you. you know, give it time to fade a little bit, then take a fresh Marvel Studios take in the uh, you know on these beloved mutants. But, and this is a big but, um, take a page out of what Warner Brothers is trying to do now. Establish a secondary banner strictly for Elseworlds tales. Maybe you do it where like the X-Men movies that you eventually start producing will happen under Marvel Studios, but maybe since they own Fox, maybe make it like these will be the Fox movies. Uh, you know, movies that wouldn't directly be tied to the MCU, and this would be where you could put things like Deadpool and X-Force and X-23. You put those there. Because look, I'm all for the X-Men getting rebooted from scratch, but not if it means that we're not getting films like Logan, Deadpool, or the upcoming New Mutants and Gambit movies anymore. So, you know, unless they're willing to let grittier R-rated X movies get made on the side under a separate banner, like what Warner Brothers is going to do with that alternate Joker movie, I don't want Marvel touching the X-Men license. So that's just me, but I'd love to know what you guys think about that. Um, you know, should they just reboot everything from scratch and that includes Deadpool? Or would you want to see them do a thing where like, all right, now Deadpool and his R-rated friends are often their own banner never to interact with the MCU? Or would you just, you know... I just, you know, I want to know which one you think a reboot that basically cancels everything or you have the Elseworld idea where there's the proper X-Men in the MCU and then there's the Deadpool movies under the Fox umbrella. Let me know what you think. Um, oh, and by the way, this would all put Hugh Jackman in a very tough spot considering he has publicly stated that he would only return to the role of Wolverine if it meant he got to play him in an MCU crossover. So if this deal gets made, he may get that call and it may wipe out that entire farewell tour he just had earlier this year. So we'll see how this plays out. As of now, the talks are over, but who knows what the future holds. Um... Fans of Stephen King's It got a little something to sort of chomp on these last couple days. Uh, Jessica Chastain, uh, who has a very close relationship with the film's director and producer who are married, you know, Andy and Barbara Muschietti. Uh, you know, they did a movie together, a horror flick a couple years ago called Mama. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are saying that they would like to see her be in the movie. Uh, because, you know, there's that character, her name, the character's name escapes me, but, you know, there's the, uh, the redheaded girl and Jessica Chastain could totally play her when, you know, when we go forward now 
whatever it is, 27 years or whatever it's supposed to be. And she sounds totally down for that, by the way. You know, she says, listen, of course I want to work. They're my friends. They're like my family. Anything that they're doing, I want to be a part of. So I hope we can make it happen. Well, Jesus, you know, Jessica Chastain, that, that is no small get. If they're able to get her for that, you know, she's an Academy Award nominated, if not a, an Academy Award winner. Uh, that would be a huge get for the cast. Uh, I'm a big fan of Jessica Chastain. Um, yeah, so, you know, let, let's see what happens. For now, it sounds like she's excited. And if the deal can be worked out, she would be all in. Uh, now there's, you know, we're going to move on to a story about Venom. Yes, Venom. Uh, you know, Tom Hardy's Venom flick has been now in production and, you know, filming for the last two and a half weeks or so. And p- places are posting different set pictures of him on set and he's on social media, sort of helping to hype things up. And something that's been coming up is this interesting idea that the storyline behind this one, uh, you know, this Venom spinoff, which will not be directly linked to the MCU, is the Lethal Protector storyline. So in the Lethal Protector comics, uh, after moving to San Francisco, Venom, uh, you know, he he battles a bunch of uh, sinister symbiotes, and he uh, he they were named Scream, uh, Scream, Phage, Riot, Lasher, and Agony. And uh, they were created by an organization called the Life Foundation who experimented on the Venom symbiote and merged the results of this experimentation with some ex-mercenaries. And that's where things get interesting because, you know, some character descriptions just hit the web for for people that the, the production is trying to cast. And there's this mysterious figure named Louis Dante. Um, the character is described as male serious, very physical soldier of fortune must be a stunt performer. Uh, so when you, you know, when you think about the soldier of fortune, stunt performer, and the fact that last week we found out that it looks like there's going to be some stuff set in San Francisco, it's starting to look like there's a chance this will be the lethal protector storyline. You know, in the books, you know, Venom goes from being a villain to essentially making a truce with Peter Parker and moving away from New York, going to San Francisco uh, and using the symbiote for good, for basically being a, what you might call it, like a vigilante type thing. Uh, So it looks like that may be the route they're going. You know, the San Francisco stuff, the soldier stuff. We'll see what happens there. Um, Another story I've been following very closely is the development of Creed II. Uh, if you recall, just to sort of recap, you know, Creed 2, while originally sort of a sequel to a spinoff, is really becoming much more of a sort of, you know, straight up uh, Rocky follow-up. Um, so with that in mind, you know, you got Sylvester Stallone directing and writing it. Sorry, I got to clear my nose there. Um, and we, we, you know, we know that Dolph Lundgren is returning as Ivan Drago. And now an MMA fighter has just revealed that he auditioned to play a particular role in the film, which kind of gives us some insight into what the story will be. So uh, the fighter is named Sage Northcutt. Look him up, by the way. 
because you're going to see why this makes very good sense. Uh, he was on a podcast called the MMA Hour. I see. Is that a podcast? I don't even know. I'm talking out of my ass. You poor people. Uh, whatever. We're going to say it's a podcast. Uh, he said the new Creed 2 movie is coming out. So I was actually going to audition for that. Got a little audition tape. So hopefully that goes through. That would be pretty neat being Ivan Drago's son in the movie. That would be pretty fun. So that's what Mr. Northcutt says. And if you see a picture of him in action... Uh, yeah, he could totally be Drago's son. And it seems like we're heading in that direction where it's going to be Adonis Creed with Sylvester Stallone in his corner versus Ivan Drago's son with Ivan Drago in his corner. Um, yeah, listen, I, 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 I keep going back and forth between the Rocky fanatic and me being so excited that they're going to do this. And the other side of me going, I kind of wanted Creed to be its own thing and not just, you know, Rocky 8. But it is what it is. And for fans of Rocky and Creed, that's, you know, that, that, that's some interesting news there. That gives us not only a storyline bit, but it also lets us know the types of people they're looking to cast. They're not looking to cast like another fellow actor. They're looking for legit fighters, which is kind of a Rocky staple. You know, that they've gotten a lot of real fighters in the past, like Tommy Morrison and whoever that guy was in Rocky Balboa. I don't follow boxing anymore, but you know, they, they, they like getting real fighters to play the antagonists in these films. Now, my readers have sent in some, uh, my readers, my listeners, um, I've sent in some questions regarding uh, some trailers that everyone's looking forward to and when I think we might see them. So let's talk about that a second, shall we? Right now, the two big ones on everyone's mind are Avengers Infinity War and Solo, A Star Wars Story. When do we think? Someone asked, you know, wouldn't it be a nice dick move to release the Avengers Infinity War trailer the same day as Justice League? I don't think Marvel's going to do that. Uh, not because they're above it, mind you. <laughs> you know, they, 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 they're they already releasing The Punisher on Netflix, coincidentally, the same day as Justice League. But I just, I, I don't really see the, the benefit for them there. Um, I think they would be much better suited releasing it with Star Wars The Last Jedi in mid-December. Uh, listen, we know that episode eight, is going to have an absolutely insane audience. Uh, you know, these Star Wars movies are always a frenzy. Hell, I I couldn't believe that Rogue One cracked a billion. I, I For some reason, I thought it had struggled to make it to that point. But I've discovered only in the last week or so that that movie made like one point something billion dollars. So these movies have a huge built-in audience People go to them not only just to see them, but they go, they bring such love and excitement to the theater. That's exactly the audience that you want to wow with a trailer for your next big movie. So considering Disney owned Lucasfilm and Disney owns Marvel, if I'm Disney, I unveil Avengers Infinity War alongside Star Wars The Last Jedi. That just makes the most sense to me. And I also think that's when you show Solo. 
You know, it's very different than last time around. People thought maybe like with Rogue One, are they going to show a Last Jedi trailer? And there was some concern that like maybe the two would cannibalize each other, that people seeing Rogue One were going to somehow be confused by seeing an Episode 8 trailer. I remember there was a bunch of chatter about that last year. I don't think we have to worry about that this year. I don't think, because it, it would so clearly be its own thing since it's going to be a prequel. Uh, I think if you show a Star Wars audience a solo trailer, there's going to be zero confusion and maximum excitement because it means we get to see another Star Wars movie in five months' time. Which, by the way, I cannot believe that. I can't believe that. With everything that's gone on, with the reshoots, with the firing of Lord and Miller, with the bringing in of Ron Howard... I cannot believe that Solo is still supposedly set to come out on May 25th of next year. I, you know, a part of me still thinks that that's going to get moved. But hey, you know, I guess technically they have enough time. We'll see what happens. But considering that when The Last Jedi comes out, we will only be about five and a half months away from Solo arriving in theaters. I think that is when you have to pull the trigger on a trailer for Solo. Because right now, unless you're a hardcore fan who watches this stuff online and, and follows all this stuff, you don't know anything about this movie. You know, there are a ton of people who are huge Star Wars fans who know nothing about what's happening after The Last Jedi. So you need to let those people know. And what better time to let them know about Solo than in Last Jedi? So yes, I would put both the trailers for Avengers Infinity War and the trailers and the trailer for Solo a Star Wars Story with Episode 8, The Last Jedi. Um, so that's sort of my prediction there. I think it makes the most sense. Listen, if they want to be dicks, they can totally try to get it attached to Justice League. But I don't think they're going to go that route. I really don't. Um, and before I let you guys go and we go into the, inter you know, the, uh, the, the, the conversation that I have with, uh, Dave Gonzalez and Kelvin Chavez, uh, who are just, you know, legends in their own right from the Latino, Latino review days and from the storm of spoilers podcast and from the splash report, you know, these guys know their stuff and they, they're going to be talking about some of their scoops and stuff that, that, that they've been talking about for years that was finally, you know, came to fruition with Ragnarok and how satisfying that was. Um, it, it, it's really, it's a great like 45 minute conversation I have with them. So I hope you guys uh, enjoy that. But before we get to that, I wanted to get to today's recommendation. So I, I don't ordinarily, I recommend you a movie. Every once in a while, I recommend to you a podcast. This week, we're going to do podcast. Uh, I was very, very pleasantly surprised yesterday when someone knows something returned, uh, it's back for its third season. I love this series. I think the host is the best true crime host uh, around. It's a documentary series that you know delves into old cold cases, and um, it's just one of the best around. If you're into true crime, and this one actually has an extra hook to it because it's got some social cultural relevance. To today, it talks about the KKK, an old case down in Mississippi that is sort of rearing its head today. Uh, it's riveting stuff. It's got it's got uh, an interesting sort of mirror to hold up to society. 
It's in the hands of a wonderful storyteller. He interviews some really fascinating individuals and he really like brings you right into the story. That's why I love it. You know, it's not like a cold sort of clinical dissection of some story that happened. It's a very personal sort of exploration of, of, of a crime and who did what and what we know and, and what suspects got away and the ramifications of the crime and what it means about our legal system. It's just someone knows something is always a great listen. And this, this particular storyline for season three, I'm loving it so far. So this week's recommendation is for someone knows something, but all right, it is now time to get into my three-way discussion with Dave Gonzalez, with Kelvin Chavez. We're going to open things up about Thor Ragnarok. We're going to get into spoilers in that movie. We're also going to take an unexpected sort of, you know, uh, turn into Justice League because it's just impossible to not talk about Justice League at a time like now. So enjoy. Here we go. All right, folks. So as I promised for this 38th edition of El Fanboy, I got two magnificent guests here to talk Thor Ragnarok. And uh, you guys know them very well. You know them from my old Latino review days. These are OGLR people. We have the editor of Latino Review and current editor-in-chief of the Splash Report, Kelvin Chavez. And we also have the one and only, the marvelous Dave himself, Mr. Dave Gonzalez. You may know him nowadays from the Storm of Spoilers, and he's got so many different exciting things going on. So try to keep up. But right now, I've got Kelvin and Dave. How are you, fellas? Good, man. Good. <laughs> it's an exciting time, man. I mean, look at this. We got Thor Ragnarok last week. We got Justice League on the horizon. We have Star Wars next month. Right now, it's like fanboy heaven. It's been pretty great. And like, I don't know about you, Kelvin, but I've been on a Planet Hulk uh, victory tour lap for like the past three months. <laughs> Kelvin and I were on this story in 2012, by the way, and everyone told us we were full of shit for years. <laughs> and we were like, no. This is going to happen. What else are you going to do with the Hulk? This is such a great idea. And so we never let it go. And now, fucking look at it on screen. I was laughing about it when I saw it on screen the other day. I was like, oh my God, there he is. I remember all the shit you guys got. Back then, I was just a reader. And I remember reading the scoop and then seeing people, you know, like basically coming at you guys when it didn't immediately happen because people don't understand that sometimes these scoops are just the seeds of an idea that's going to come to fruition years down the road and it's going to evolve but here we are in 2017 it finally happened so i'm glad you guys are beating your chests a little bit about it (laughs) for sure yeah i've been looking into it since it came out and what it seems like happened was Marvel had essentially the idea that uh, Kelvin and I reported years ago uh, as what they were going to do for Thor 3. Um, They obviously did Avengers Age of Ultron, very heavily leaning into that. Um, It was going to be Infinity Stone-centric. It was obviously still going to have Ragnarok as part of it. But then uh, Chris Hemsworth thought that Thor was getting boring, and Taika Waititi came in and got hired as a director and was like, yeah, we could do this. Just allow me to break some of it apart. And so Kevin Feige actually gave them permission to go outside of the outline they had. So like some things minorly changed from what we thought was going to happen. But the overall structure is still there. So like Heimdall doesn't die. The Warriors 3 die. But still the idea that Hela shows up and just breaks the hammer and causes 
you know, horror and Ragnarok is still there. So it's been interesting to see how the movie evolved as we were reporting about it, but yeah. with this core, like, central part that stayed the same. Yeah, I mean, Kelly, and you even, even the stuff you reported about Hella was confirmed in this, too, how she's basically, like, they've turned her into, the, I mean, listen, I'm not a comic book person, so I don't know you know, if I misquote something, but I remember you once said that, like, they basically turned her into the goddess of death or the lady death from the Infinity War books, right, or the Infinity Gauntlet books? Yeah, yeah, yep, yeah. I posted that a while ago, yeah. Is that accurate, Dave? I mean, she definitely is the representation of death that we've seen in the Marvel Universe, and I don't think that we're going to get another one for Infinity War. So whether or not that plays in, I don't know, but Kelvin's exactly accurate that I think Hela is going to end up being death because bringing Kate Blanchett back <clears throat> is like a no-brainer, yeah. considering how well she does vamping in this movie. Yeah, right? So, And I want to get into that, too, a little Hella bit good. about Hela. Yeah, she, yeah, and she looked damn good, too. I was surprised. I'm not a Kate Blanchett guy, but... Hello. But uh, but just just to sort of recap in terms of scoops that you guys nailed. So and this we have the Planet Hulk stuff coming to fruition, which, by the way, Kelvin even once did a write up on exactly how Hulk was going to be introduced. And he did it like a year and a half ago, I think. And that's exactly how it played out in this um, in the movie. And then we also had the scoop about, you know, Hella being Lady Death, you know, being the embodiment of death that's probably going to be factoring into avengers uh, infinity war storyline so kudos to the two of you ace fucking scoop bombers that you are but um all right so now let's talk about the movie a little bit so kelvin i'm going to start with you what did you think of thor ragnarok well like i said, I, I thought it was awesome i thought it was the best out of the three of them i like the fact that um it was different tone a little bit and i like you know you see the Thor that I, I used to read in comic books with him flying with the, the hammer and stuff like that. You actually see that here uh, a little bit more. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I enjoyed it a lot. You know, the, everybody was good. All right. Scale of one to ten, Kelvin. Nine. All right. All right. Dave, mm -hmm. your turn. Um, I liked it. It's nice to see that 17 movies into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, they could still uh, provide like a good evening at the movies. Uh, it's, this one was kind of slight for what I like in a Marvel movie, which is obviously the interconnected universe stuff. I'm yeah. really disappointed we didn't get a soul stone. But that being said, I've seen this movie twice and each time all of its jokes work in the theater or at least 90% of its jokes work in the theater. Some of them don't work just because you're too, they're too fast or they're too subtle. If you're not way into the MCU uh, universe, but yeah. in terms of making a Marvel comedy movie that is taking the things that made guardians of the galaxy, such a big hit and applying that to the franchise that needed the most help being Thor and Hulk individually. Those are the characters that need help to be something uh, sort of applying the guardians formula to that really works so even though it's not going to be something that i rewatch because it has huge character moments or important things for the mythology i think i'm going to revisit it a lot more just because it's plain fun um and then i i also think that it's interesting that we've now gotten to a point where we have two marvel heroes who are basically the strongest and they team up with as guardians who are basically gods and we're seeing all these in like complete sequence CGI environments. So any idea that like real world physics exists has gone completely out of the window yeah. uh, for this movie, which is both interesting and um, I think makes it unique. So the movie feels like it's a uh, 1970s rock album cover come to life with all of the weightlessness 
that that comes with. So like Thor punching Hulk, I know they're both punching hard, but I don't know how to really compare those two things because I'm dealing with uh, nonsense physics, yeah. which both makes the most amount of sense. Like a comic book also has nonsense physics, so we're getting close to making cinematic comic books, but it's also interesting and like, I love how hella fights in this movie, but it does feel weird that I'm pretty sure none of that's Kate Blanchett. Like it looks like a digital double <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. In other movies, I'd be like, screw you for making this a cartoon. But in this one, I'm like, no, Thor Ragnarok wants to be a cartoon. And so let it be a cartoon. I'm really glad you said that because I, I was talking to the friend I saw the movie with last week, Scully, um, about that. Like when it comes to these kinds of movies where it's like basically demigods and gods beating the shit out of each other, I always have a hard time kind of understanding how much damage, if any, is being done. And that always tends to mess up with how invested in the fight I am. Cause I'm like, I don't know if you can really be hurt. You're a god of thunder. So are these punches just cosmetic or is this damage happening? Is your life at, you know, at risk? You know, the, 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 the stakes are always very unclear because it's always sort of vague how powerful and how impenetrable these characters really are so i'm really glad you hit that but while we're talking about your feedback scale of one to ten what do you give ragnarok oh i'm gonna give it a solid seven with the capability of it moving up to an eight or nine if marvel's like that's gonna be our funny one if this is the shining light in you know some 25 marvel movies a few years down the road then thor ragnarok might be one of the best simply because it's so well executed another so as long as it's more of an exception, it might move up. If it becomes the rule, it's going to stay there, right? I don't want every hero to get the Guardians of the Galaxy treatment. Yeah. You don't need to send Iron Man into space. Black Panther doesn't need to be on Mars. I'm okay if Captain Marvel spends a little bit of time with the Skrulls in the early 90s like we hear she's going to. But I don't think that uh, what they should have taken from Guardians of the Galaxy being popular is what if we made everything colorful and in space. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thankfully, I have a feeling that things are going to become a little more grounded, a little more serious starting next year because the Black Panther trailer, like the, what we've seen so far, despite it being hyper-stylized and all that sort of stuff, the story itself seems to have a much deeper core and I have a feeling that Avengers Infinity War is also going to be a fairly intense, quasi-dark movie, not really a jokey thing. So I, I do have a feeling that Ragnarok is just sort of its own thing. Uh, which is kind of aping on the Guardians thing, but still kind of its own thing. And that in you know, the 2018 Marvel offerings are going to be a little more down to just, you know, intense, darker themes being explored. So that, that's my guess. Um, for me, let's see. I had reviewed Ragnarok last week. I did it on a letter scale. I said B plus. So what would that convert to on a one to 10 scale? What is it like an 8.5? Not... Not a nine, which would be an A something. So I would give it an 8.5 because my, my overall thing was, you know, it's very fun, very entertaining, a great couple of hours at the theaters, but there's really nothing that sticks to the ribs. There's nothing that's going to put goosebumps on you or, or leave you thinking about anything on a deeper level, really, after the movie. It really is just a rollicking hell of a great time, but there's nothing much to it. And that's what stops it from being like a great, you know, being a, a nine or an A or something like that. So that was sort of my overall take on it. Um now, what what did you guys think of Hela since she came up earlier? Kelvin, what, what did you think of this Marvel villain? Because we know Marvel villains are always sort of under the microscope. People always see them as one of the weaker elements in an MCU movie. What did you think of Hela? I think she was like one of the 
I guess not the best villain from the Marvel universe. Uh, I, I still think Loki is the, the best one so far. She's like right next to him. And like I, I said again, she, she to me, she was, I think one of the best things of the film. You know what I mean? Okay. I enjoyed every time that she came out. You know, I enjoyed her performance and. Even though Dave said that, you know, even though you, she's fighting and it looks like it was a uh, digital, you know, I still liked it. You know, liked her performance overall. Yeah. Dave, what do you think? I'm definitely and everything Kate Blanchett did is 100% correct. The only thing I have questions is some of the post-production decisions, like giving her three head models instead of just two. So she has hair down, hair up with no cheekbone spikes and then oh, hair yeah, yeah, up with yeah. cheekbone spikes and black eye makeup which makes it feel like they were like trying to do like an old hella versus new hella thing but then they like mess up and put the black eye makeup in the final fight with thor for a second <laughs> yeah and then obviously the digital double stuff which is really cool but then i feel like the reason i could see it as being a digital double is because they bend her too much like when she jumps she sticks her knee straight out in the air and it just bends in a way that Kate Blanchett can't bend. I don't know if real people can bend that way, but definitely someone of Kate Blanchett's age can't bend that way. But like then again, those are like moments to create a splash page like effect. So I'm definitely think it benefits the movie. The weird thing about <clears throat> Hella in this is that she is so augmented. So like Hella never wears an actual physical headdress. Kate Blanchett never wears an actual physical headdress. That's all yeah. CG. Which is great, except when they get some of the lighting reference wrong. Because uh, because it's CG, they allow her to sort of point her black things like they're, I don't know, claws or something. And that's going to reflect light in different ways. And if it doesn't reflect it exactly perfectly, your mind kind of goes, what, what? And you're looking at her helmet when you shouldn't be. That yeah. kind of bothers me. And then Odin is never wearing an eye patch, which like <laughs> I understand not wanting to put Anthony Hopkins in like this makeup. But like it, it's really difficult because it makes them freeze part of his forehead so that he's not wrinkling the non-existent strap. So part of like the Odin speech kind of comes off as like, eh, because he's not wearing an eye patch. <laughs> Again, these are things most people won't like normally notice, but things like I saw my second time through where I'm like, all the performances are there, but we're starting to hit the wall on what a performance on a green screen can be changed to and still be like finished product by the time it hits theaters, and, and I, which I guess is going to be an issue with Justice League next week, too. Yeah, oh, we can get to that later. But speaking of like green screen and like crappy green screen, it is almost laughable. The scenes with Odin on that cliff. Like he's so c clearly inside of a, a, a soundstage, you know what I mean? Like it's it's it it was almost jarringly bad how you know the, the green screen in that sequence there on the and he's talking about you know look at all of this this is home this is whatever like and it just like it's hard to take it seriously or really invest in the emotional nature of what he's trying to say to his sons when it looks like fucking you know pure phony baloney. Um, yeah, and that's, that's replacing the homeless Odin stuff that they shot. So yeah. at some point, it was taken out of the city and put into Norway. I could only assume to set up that uh, like a siege sort of Marvel comic book storyline where Asgard moves to Earth. And then, you know, it's like this floating city above someplace on Earth now. And then we'll eventually get there. But it was interesting to change it to a nondescript field. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
So on the subject of Hella, for me, she was just sort of frustrating because I felt like the writing for her gave her a very sort of provocative and interesting backstory and for what she symbolizes for everything, being Odin's daughter and being a half-sister to Thor and to Loki and, and, and being like the embodiment of the way that Asgard was built, the way that she harks back to the, the guilty past that Odin's not proud of. She's into the bloodshed and the tyrannical behavior that established Asgard. You know, I thought there was a lot there that was interesting about her and thought-provoking about her. But then she, as a villain, seemed somewhat toothless to me. And I never really, she never really felt like a real clear and present danger to our heroes. She was more so just like, a, like Dave said earlier, sort of vamping and chewing up the scenery. But I never really was particularly scared or intimidated of Hela. And that's unfortunate because she does seem as written on the page like a villain that could sort of go for the jugular and could be a game changer. You guys know what I mean? Yeah, I think they saved her a little bit because like, they had to bring in another god essentially to end the world to take her down. And I think that was a cool choice in the sense of you've saved Hela as not only a villain that you like dealt with once, but she's an immortal one that uh, Thor can't beat. Like Thor, Hulk, Valkyrie, Loki, they can't beat Hela. They had to destroy Asgard. So if Hela ever shows up again, she still has that threat level. Unlike some of the others, like if Red Skull ever shows up again, we're like, where the fuck were you, man? But <laughs> yeah. I think Hela could just show up and uh, be badass right from the start and be like, you think you could kill the god of death? The 30,000 <laughs> knives. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kel, I mean, but you you dug her, right? You You had no qualms about Hela? I didn't see that much of a problem. Cause I saw the movie with my daughter. But she liked her a lot. And I did too. I mean, that line, I, 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 I was sort of a general Zod. I said, kneel before Zod. She oh, said, yeah. kneel before Queen. You know what I mean? But yeah. I, I dug her. You know. All right. All right. All right. Listen, we're not all perfect. I get it. Um, now, in terms of the like the, the the ramifications of Ragnarok and how we think it's going to sort of, you know, affect Infinity War and, and seeds that were planted like you know, as as you like, David, you're a comic book guy and whatever. Like, what do you think? Like, what was in there that you think has the most direct links to what we're going to be seeing next year? Um, when. Loki is looking at the Tesseract and then we cut away and yeah. that Heimdall's power colors are the color of the soul gem. Those are the two things. Interesting. I, it, explain two that. Oh, well, explain that for the, for the, uh, the people who may not know exactly what all that means. So we saw the infinity gems in guardians of the galaxy. And then again in, uh, Avengers age of Ultron. And we know that the missing gem, the soul stone is like this amber color and it was the same color that Heimdall's eyes uh, are and Heimdall's magic when he writes on the stone is and the same color that was used uh, for Heimdall's character posters implying that they're designing us for a buildup. I always thought that the plot of this movie was going to involve the soul stone. I still think it might have and they just switched it to the eternal flame because what is the eternal flame does that the soul stone wouldn't have done? They're both magical MacGuffins. Uh, I just think that they thought that putting an infinity stone in here would sort of like bog it down with the rest of the MCU. So I still think Heimdall has possession of the soul stone. 
And at the end, the very end of the movie, the first post-credit sequence, when we see the Asgardian ship being like lorded over by Thanos, I think Thanos has come for one or both of those gems, uh, and that's what's going to kick off uh, Infinity War. Ah, you know, I hadn't really thought of that. I, I kind of just thought they threw in Thanos' ship just kind of like a big Easter egg, like, oh. But I didn't think about the actual motivations of him coming for them. So if he's coming there because he thinks both of the remaining stones are on there, that's a pretty big fucking deal. You're good, Yeah, dude. I mean, I, I definitely know... I, I know Loki has to have the Tesseract because we've seen Infinity War footage of him offering it up. And then, so that, together with the cut that's in Thor, Thagnar, Thor Ragnarok... It is just really obvious. The thing that I'm just hoping is that Heimdall has the soul stone so that the acrostic theory works out, which is that every soul stone spells Thanos, you know, like Tesseract, Heimdall, oh. <laughs> Aether, Necklace, Orb, Scepter. I just think that that would be like it's it's always nice when you feel like they have a handle on their huge fiction so, like, way back in the day when J.K. Rowling was, like, one of the horcruxes is a chapter heading in book six, and then we all had to go back in book six and look for the, the chapter heading that could have been a horcrux. I like those <laughs> things. They seem like little, you know, like, back of the cereal box puzzles that sort of, like, enhance the mystery a little bit in between films. So I'm really hoping that uh, the, all the Infinity Stones end up spelling Thanos acrostically. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys noticed this, but I kind of love the retcon that occurred in Thor Ragnarok where they finally sort of retroactively fixed an issue with the Infinity Gauntlet. You know what I'm talking about? How in the war in the weapon room in the first Thor, they show the Infinity Gauntlet and it's like complete. And that was always sort of like a, you know, a plot hole because we know after that, that it looks like Thanos is looking for, you know, to get all the stones for the gauntlet. So how could it be that Odin just has it sitting there with all of the gems in place? And Kevin Feige like acknowledged that Thor Ragnarok does officially sort of retcon that by saying that the one in there is a fake. And in this movie in Ragnarok, they cement that because she walks, you know, Hela walks by it. She looks at it and she says, ah, it's a fake. So I'm kind of glad that they finally sort of address that, right? Yeah, that was for funny. sure. Yeah, uh, I, I want to read you uh, Feige's thing just so you could, you know, for everyone who's listening who's a little lost on the matter, uh, I'm going to read you what Kevin Feige said this week about it. So he said, as we learn in this movie, he vanished his firstborn daughter because he sort of got what he needed. He got to the top of the nine realms and it was like, oh, this is much too violent. And Hella says, glad to have it, ashamed of how we got it. And we see that mural in the movie of how it was not a pleasant history of how Asgard got all that gold. So Odin has a history of doing what he wants to do to maintain power. And going back, I mean, now it's probably five years ago, we started again just in our internal creative group saying, well, it's fake. Because if the Asgardians knew that there was something that had that kind of power that could theoretically wipe out Asgard and whatever else with, uh, in the comics, a literal snap of the fingers, they might question Odin's ability to protect them. So Odin put a fake and he goes, it's fine. I got it. Look, it's fine. It's in our vault. Don't worry about it. And it's not until Hela goes down there. It was fun being back in that vault, by the way, for the first time since Thor 1. 
it was just the opportunity to call it a fake. So for people like yourself and like all of us at Marvel Studios who were paying attention, that answers that question. So yeah, I, I, I kind of love how invested Feige is in all this stuff. And like he did, you know, kind of help retroactively go back and fix that. Um, so. It's a little back padding, though, because <laughs> look... I'm glad you fixed that that continuity error, but you still don't explain how Korg and Loki managed to fly that big boxy transport through the Devil's Anus, like <laughs> after you just told us only two ships can do it. So don't be like we have no plot holes and then leave plot holes. I I get I get why because so many people were like, haha, you didn't know your goddamn universe, the Infinity Gauntlets fully formed in Thor. But I think three paragraphs to explain us that, you know, they had Hela knock it off the, the pedestal is a little too foggy for the situation. <laughs> all right. All right. Listen, I'll, I'll hand you, I'll, you know, it's it's I, I'm trying to give them credit, but I totally see what you mean there. Um, I mean, I think their credit is going to be their huge box office take for Thor Ragnarok. Yeah, let's uh, talk so about that they, a little they could do that. Jeez, yeah, let's talk about that a second. Just like kind of how, how much the Thor series has improved. So the first one opened to 65.7 mil. And the second one opened up to 85.7 mil, which in and of itself, hey, that's a nice $20 million improvement. You always want things to get bigger, right? This one opened officially to 122.7, which is higher than Sunday's estimate, which had stood at 121.5. So, I mean, who the hell saw this coming after that dud that was Thor the Dark World, right? Like, wow. Not Marvel. My screening was at 3 p.m. on a Thursday, and I'm like, why are you guys hiding Thor? <laughs> I think they were a little scared about the tonal shift uh, in this in this movie in the sense that they've gone completely crazy with it. They give away their biggest twist in the advertising, which is that Hulk is the champion. The movie treats that as a secret. Um so I think they just went all in because they were scared like this went too far. I think someone saw a cut in like February or something was like, oh, uh, we're just going to let this one do its own thing and see what <laughs> happens. Uh, it can't be worse than what Alan Taylor did. So let's at least, you know, shoot for that 85 million opening. Uh, but they, you know, I there was in, compared to other, you know, like Spider-Man this year, Spider-Man Homecoming, which had like thousands of trailers and the week before was absolutely unavoidable. Thor Ragnarok was just like, hey, we're here. We're crazy. We're colorful. Come see us this weekend, maybe. And coming out of one of the worst Octobers box office wise ever, I could definitely see, uh, you know, planning Disney planning board that's like Thor Ragnarok. We have to be able to take a rock on this one. And I think the audiences are just showing up for something fun. And then I guess the other theory would be uh, you can't make a failed Hulk movie unless it's just Hulk. If Hulk's on a team, <laughs> it's going to yeah. bring in over $100 million on the first, the first week. Oh, for sure. Yeah, Kelvin, were you, were you surprised by this, by this box office haul? Uh, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, sure. I thought it was going to make like $100 million or $90 million, but not, not the way, not 120 something million. Yeah, it's kind no. of a game changer. I mean, I I don't think anyone thought that Ragnarok was really going to have any bearing on Justice League, by the way. Like, if you asked a year ago, do you think the third Thor movie opening up two weeks before Justice League is going to be an issue for Justice League? People would have just laughed in your face like, oh, come on, it's 
fucking Thor. You know, that's going to get demolished as soon as Justice League comes out. But I don't know, you know, because not only does it have great reviews, not only did it overperform at the box office, but the word of mouth is very, very good. You know, the, the, the cinema score, I believe, is an A. And everyone's kind of going around sharing the the the, sh- the social media presence is through the roof. I have a feeling this thing is going to have a very nice, strong second weekend. And going into its third weekend, you know, if Justice League gets beaten up by critics, or if if the if the results are not what they hoped in terms of the uh, that initial opening weekend, you know, it just Ragnarok I think is going to take a bigger bite than anyone could have ever anticipated, and that is crazy to think about. Um, but yeah, I mean, what, what's what's the box office expectations for Justice League? Well, they uh, they're, they're kind of lowballing it as of now. But remember, the, the projections are always sort of on the low end. You know, like for for Spider for Spider Man Homecoming, they were saying a hundred and it made one thirty two. For Wonder Woman, at some point, they said sixty five million and it opened to one oh two. So they're they're always low. But right now they're saying Justice League is somewhere between 100 and 120, I believe, is what the current thinking on the street is. Which could mean, if we're looking at how wrong they were about Spider-Man and Wonder Woman, it could actually mean that we're looking at something that's more between 130 and 155. If we want to sort of look at that margin for error. The reason I'm saying that because you see more, like, they've hit that point where, you know, the advertising on Thor was like, hey, we're here. But I'm seeing a lot more advertising for the last two weeks already on Justice League. Like every commercial that I see is Justice League, Justice League, Justice League. Well, because they're they're trying to follow the Wonder Woman model, which worked out wonders for them. If you guys recall, earlier this year, there was this whole sentiment of like, why is it Warner Brothers promoting Wonder Woman? I don't even know this movie's coming out. What is wrong with them? But then they waited. They waited until those last like three weeks leading up to it, and they bombarded the fuck out of us. And look, it worked out. That movie was you know the biggest success within the DCEU in terms of you know the just profits and all that sort of stuff so I, I think they're just following the wonder woman model of doing like a late blitz in like the final two or three weeks um have you seen it kelvin no but i've got feedback from people who saw it in london uh, i'm also it. i'm also on that on that train I, I could see it on tuesday i'm still surprised this is a movie like <laughs> i don't I, like it's i mean, it's, I, I mean what what I, I don't know about you what you heard dave but i heard from two people that they liked it. One of them, who's a really harsh critic, said he liked it. And then my other friend, who we all know, I won't mention him right now, but he also said that he really liked that as well. You know, and then uh, he would say, you're right. There was, there's a couple of things that you were right about. And uh, I'll tell you guys in a, in a few that what I've learned from the movie so far. But, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, I've heard yeah. Uh, like a net surprisingly watchable. But that doesn't tell me anything because (laughs) surprisingly watchable means like that. You mean you saw a movie. Great. Thanks a lot for telling me that this thing's (laughs) been in production. Like, I don't know, like Jason Momoa has been Aquaman for like four years at this point. We haven't we haven't seen him do anything. Uh, The Flash has been all over the place. Uh, Cyborg, they showed him in like really early trailers, locking them into a design, and he still looks like that. Which you know, whatever. I want some more reflective surfaces. Maybe they have it in the actual movie. I am so interested to see this movie just to see what came out of it. On the best side, it's super watchable. 
Um, uh, we learned that, you know, like Rogue One, you could make movies by committee. It doesn't really matter who the director is as long as somebody has like a handle on it. Uh, and then, you know, we're all like, yeah, great. These characters didn't die. On the other hand, this could be a fantastic for Josh Trank level failure that we can't blame on anybody because of like the tragedy that's behind its director switch, where then it just becomes this lump of a movie that we endlessly debate a la Suicide Squad, but can't blame anybody unlike Suicide Squad. One of the subplots that I'm most intrigued about, and not a subplot within the movie, with a subplot, just the fact that this movie exists is, you know, this was once going to be like the next launch pad. You know, this was going to help propel us into the solo movies for each of these characters. This was once going to set the stage for a Justice League 2. And now from the sounds of it, all of that has been cut away as, you know, now this is more or less just come, it's become its own sort of climax. It's the end of something rather than the start of something. And I, it's for me, one of the things I'm most intrigued about is considering that decision was made very late in the process, will this movie feel complete anymore? Will this movie feel like it really has its own beginning, middle and end and can really, in a satisfying way, stand on its own? You know, because if you because it's just, you know, they, they went into this one way, thinking of it as a launch pad and they came out of it going, this is really the end of a certain chapter. So, right. I'm I mean, just... it has to be Superman three. It, I mean, at, at its core, when I at the end, that's the arc that I'm going to care about, I'm, I'm assuming. So that's what I'm looking for when yeah. when it comes out is like, tell me why I've been like sitting with you for a decade as you insist that you really do have this Superman story to tell. I've been there for three movies now. Tell me what that story is. And at least that's what the clips that they've released for the EPK have been sort of pointing in that direction. Like, you know, the Ben Affleck world needs Superman thing The look around and you'll see his monument shot. Um, so I, I want it to be that what I'm worried about is that we've seen so many things in the justice league trailers since a year ago We've seen the, you know, Parademon fight. We've seen the Aquaman launching off the Batmobile. We've seen the, you know, climbing up the tube fight to get away from Steppenwolf. Um, like, have I seen all the action sequences in this movie? Have I seen them all for a year? And is <laughs> how, if so, how is Justice League going to make me care about them again? Yeah, yeah, I mean, that is worrisome. That is worrisome with all the cuts that have gone on to that now I'm just worried it's just going to be a bunch, like a highlight reel. Like, you know, like they only saved the action set pieces and everything around it got so heavily altered that, you know, am I going to care about the story, you know, that connects these set pieces? Um, but you know what? You actually hit the nail on that. I hadn't thought of that. They, it, it would have been in their best interest. And maybe they did this. And if they did, kudos to them. Um, to essentially make sure that this is Superman 3. That's a great way to think about it. If they could have like distilled the story to just make this the rightful third chapter in Superman's story, then you know this movie could sort of stand on its own as like you know this is what we've been building towards. Um, so now I kind of hope that's the case. See, now you got me excited. God damn it. Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I want 60 minutes of we're fucked without Superman because then you get to see everybody fucked without Superman, which should be fun action wise. And then wrap it all up with Superman coming back and being like, you were all fucked without me. Like, I'll take that <laughs> plot. I don't care about the mother boxes. This should be Superman three or yeah, Man of Steel three or however the we're talking about it. It should have been Justice yep. League colon fucked without Superman. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, 
but, right. but I mean, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I also I heard that you know, like, uh, spoiler alert. I don't know if you guys want to know, but not no, not no. I mean, but there's no, for example, there's no uh, those rumors about Superman coming back with the black suit. There is no black suit. Oh, uh, damn, guys. There is no dark side, but we all knew that, you know. Um, right. And then, of course, um, the film being under two hours, which you know was actually confirmed, I guess. Oh, and there's which all, is I mean, if, if we're nice. yeah, oh, it really is. But if we're just unloading on these things, I'm going to have to put such a heavy spoiler tag on all this at the start of the show. But it's okay. Uh, if we, if we're unloading these things, I'm also hearing it's official that there's no Lex Luthor that they cut oh, whatever oh, oh, oh. it is. Yeah. And. and, and Oh, you're going to say go ahead, it? Go ahead. No, you say no, it. Go ahead. No. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> say it, motherfucker. Oh, that that uh, there's also mention of lanterns. Not a specific one, but just lanterns. But in and of itself, that's a confirmation that while there is a mention, which we already knew because of the trailers, there is no Green Lantern. Sorry for those of you who were dying to see a Green Lantern in this. Sorry for those of you who bought into the tagline from a year and a half ago, which totally got thrown away, which was Unite the Seven. There is no Seven, okay? There is no Seven. There's no Green Lantern as of now. So just yeah, and in a way, I think these are good spoilers because this will help you sort of walk in with level expectations. Don't go in there waiting for that big Green Lantern reveal. Don't go in there because you want to see how Lex Luthor connects things to Darkseid. Don't, you know, it just it, that stuff is not happening in the movie. All right. So just don't go in expecting that. Um, yeah, so you know what? So I I gave you guys a scale of one to ten earlier. We were asking about Ragnarok review. What is your Justice League hype right now from one to ten? Dave, you go first. From one to ten, Justice League hype. I mean, I really want to see it, and I really want it to be good. But until I hear from more people, I'm still not sure it exists. So four, like I'm gonna walk into my screening being like, here comes something. <laughs> and I'll have a better idea when I walk out. But right now, it's just a moment in my calendar. I have to be in a theater. I really have no idea what this movie has in store for me. Yeah. I'm, I'm in the same boat with Dave. I mean. Hello? Oh, we lost him for you, too. Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. Oh, All right. I lost no, you. Go I, ahead. I was, just, I was just saying that um, I have the same ex- expectations as Dave. I, I'd probably give it a five. But I don't know what to expect from this movie. This movie's been in the worst for, I don't know, what, three, four years? I have no idea. And, you know, did we actually see all the action sequences on the trailer already? You know, what else can you see? I mean, I have no clue. You know, my expectations on this film is low. Not that I'm I'm bashing DC. I like DC. But, um, you know, I guess the, the least expectations I have, the better the film will probably be. I want to have fun. I want to the same thing I did for Thor. It doesn't have to be a comedy, but you gotta you gotta give me some fun. Don't make me do what I did for Batman v Superman, where like halfway through the movie I was checking my watch because I felt like I'd been there for five hours. Yeah. If it could just avoid that, you know that's that's a plus. Well, DC I, is on the upswing. They just need to keep that 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 arc going. And I think they're gonna pull that off. I think that's why Whedon came on, honestly, just to make it even if it's not amazing and coherent just to make it a pleasure 
just to make it, you know, two hours of like, you know what, this was fun. It was sort of dumb, but I had a good time in the theater. And he's good at that. You know what I mean? I, I think he was brought on to kind of popcorn the fuck out of it and to try to put, you know, moments of nostalgia. That's why, that's why you, you have Elfman in there and Elfman is bringing back his old Burton theme and, and even elements of the, uh, the, um, the John Williams Superman theme. So, so they're, they're trying to play on the nostalgia a little bit. From what I hear, the post-credit sequence is going to be a great little bit of fan service. It's just going to send you home happy. It's not, you know, not going to be one of those titillating post-credit sequences where you're like, oh my God, I can't wait for how they follow that up. It's one of those where you're like, oh, that was really cool. I, I, these characters are pretty nice after all. I, I enjoyed these guys. You know, like they're really trying to just make it more of just like a pleasant fan service, send you home with a smile on your face type of thing. Um, it almost reminds me of what happened with Rogue One, another film that took on a big sort of overhaul, where once the final cut came through, you, know, you, you kind of got the sense that they loaded it up with these little things that probably weren't originally there, but because it, you know, it, it, it touches those pleasure sensors in your brain. You know, the, little, the little appearance of R2 and C-3PO, the, uh, the little appearance of the guys from the cantina for no reason there on uh, Jeddah. Um, um, you know, just, I, I, feel know, like just I feel like they added some things. Just to sort of soften the blow of some of the other stuff that went wrong, you know. So I have a yeah. feeling it is going to be. A I good mean, time. I was, I was thrilled just to see that they did a final color grade pass on Justice League. Like I've been the dork that's been watching every footage they release. Like every time they release that Flash, you know, or Bruce Bruce, Bruce finds the Flash and is like yeah. little thing with Rick and Morty on the TV. They've color graded that thing like four different times and I hated it the first three times. <laughs> and then it's like, finally, they were like, okay, we got to do a finer, final color pass. Let's maybe go super saturated instead of pulling everything out of the gray. So it's like, we're really, not only do I want like Easter eggs, not only do I want to see DC characters that I recognize, but I'm ready to see a world that isn't super bleak. I think that hopefully Batman v Superman's the they learned their lesson on that. But everything on Justice League says troubled production that is doing its damnedest to get to be something that I really like, and I can't I can't knock that that attempt. Yeah. All right. You know I okay. So I have two more things before I let you guys go because I know you guys have things to do, and I'm just I'm humbled that you guys have spent these last forty minutes with me. But two more things. So just real quick, just for fun, what is your Rotten Tomato score prediction for Justice League? You first, Dave. Rotten Tomato score for Justice League. I'm going to say critics fifty six, audience seventy nine. Okay, Kelvin. I say overall seventy six. So seventy six just across the board. Yeah, across the board. I'm gonna go. See, I don't know the fan ones. I they're always just much higher. I'm not even gonna bother with the fans. I'm gonna say, I'm gonna be optimistic, and I'm gonna say sixty three percent. That is my optimism, by the way. <laughs> I'm gonna go sixty three. That's as optimistic as I can afford to be with Justice League. Um. All right, so now, so yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna lock these in, so just so we we can refer to them later on. So Kelvin said 76, Dave said 56, and I said 63. We'll see. Yeah, you know, so someone has to buy someone a drink when this is all over, and we're gonna see. Uh, yeah. we're gonna I wonder see. if they're gonna have a three-hour version of Justice League. Yeah, well, what do you I think? Mean, Are they gonna do the Ultimate Edition thing? I would be so surprised. I think this is gonna be like 
The Force Awakens, where uh, it's in production, Harrison Ford breaks his leg, and then we don't know what changed in between yeah. things, but we know that things did change. And like every Force Awakens documentary, every behind-the-scenes book, just pretends that whole period didn't happen. <laughs> I have to assume that if Justice League's successful, no one's going to want to open the hood on this thing. It's all going to be backroom whispers about who saved what, and that's all going to be used to get other people's jobs. We'll never actually know who saved Justice League, if it's good. Once if it's again, bad, someone's going to leak and point fingers, and then we get to untie that knot. Once again, another great bit of insight from you, Dave. I hadn't thought of that. That You're right. If it somehow comes out and everyone's surprisingly blown away and it's a runaway success and it's making all this money, I don't think we'll see an Ultimate Edition. If it's another one that sort of comes out and collapses in week two and is another just sort of blight on the DC brand, then I guess we'll see that Ultimate Edition because then they're going to want to milk it for all it's worth and get that home release money. Yeah, Dave, you're pretty good, you. You're pretty damn good. <laughs> now, before I let you guys go, this is another just quickie. Uh, there have been three Marvel movies this year. I want you to just give me your your ranking for all three. First, second, third place. Kelvin, you go first. Uh, which three? Uh, Thor, Spider-Man, Guardians. and uh, I say, Guardians 2. I say Spider-Man, Thor, and Guardians. Okay. Dave? Uh, I'm going to do Spider-Man, Guardians, Thor. Ooh, okay. And I'm going to do Spider-Man... Thor, Guardians. I didn't mean you? to do that dramatic. I'm, I'm the only. I'm the only person that does daddy issues. Is what we learned. <laughs> <in this ranking. laughs> well, man, I uh, I'm really glad to have had both of you on here. Thank you so much for joining me this week. And maybe if you guys are free next week on Friday, I want to have a fanboy sort of roundtable chat, uh, doing a non-spoiler. Justice League talk the day the movie comes out. So I'm just kind of laying the groundwork for that. If you guys want to clear your schedules for next week, Friday, you're both more than welcome to hop back on. All right. I'll, I'll definitely know if it's a movie by then. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Oh, and Kelvin, you're coming with us on yeah. Thursday night yeah. to the Thursday yeah. preview screening. So, yeah. all right, beautiful fellas. Thank you so much. And uh, we'll be in touch. All right, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, buddy. So it's always a pleasure to have those two gentlemen on the show. I think I'm going to get one or both of them back next week as part of a larger roundtable discussion on Justice League. So that should be pretty damn exciting. Everyone, thank you for joining me on this nearly two-hour edition of El Fanboy. If you're uh, liking what you're hearing, please subscribe. Please go on uh, Apple Podcasts and leave me a review. Tell your friends about me. And if you want to take it a step further, go to patreon.com slash lfanboy and contribute to the cause today. I will be having uh, patron content for you starting on Thursday where you guys get an exclusive, uh, you know, an early... Uh, why am I? It's been a long morning, folks. You got you got to bear with me. And my kids are actually home from school. It's election day, so I've also got to be daddy amidst all this stuff. So I'm just a little shot, but it's been a hell of a morning. Thank you guys for joining me, and there will be our first uh, patron perk on Thursday. Thank you, and until next week, adios.